You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Why, hello there. I didn't notice you there. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Series 2 of The Worship Review, the podcast which critically examines the texts of Christian worship music. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Colin. Hello, I'm Colin. I'm a history professor at a large research university in the Midwest. And Tyler, you are a linguistic student in German, is that right? It's true. It's true. That is what I do In series two of this podcast, we're going to take a look at some hymns, traditional hymns, that have been reworked, rearranged, and made contemporary by Christian music bands, Christian worship teams, and focus primarily on their content. So we'll spend a little bit of time looking at their uh, subjects, their actions, their agents, and their clarity, but really focus on what the crux of each song is and and spend most of the each episode there. So today we're going to take a look at a song most of you probably know. It's a hymn. It's called How Great Thou Art and we're going to look at Hillsong Worship's arrangement of this hymn. This is my So, Colin, to start out with, uh, who or what is How Great Thou Art about? How Great Thou Art is about an individual singing about things that God has done in creation, that Christ has done at the cross, and that God will bring about in the future. So it has a temporal component. And it has broad things that God has done and very specific things that God has done. And much of the song focuses on these things through what the worshiper is experiencing. The song talks about the worshiper seeing things, thinking things, or expecting to experience things. So in the third stanza, when Christ shall come and take me home. So it's it's still desc- it's describing something that Christ is going to do but to the individual. All of these observations or experiences which occur in the verses then elicit praise. So the refrain is always a kind of response to the thing that happens and the worshiper's soul sings. And this kind of responsive worship is something to be noted, because it's not always what we find in uh, Christian music. This is pointing to very specific things, even very broad, big things like the creation of the universe. But still gives examples. Giving clear examples. I see the stars. Exactly. Um, And offering praise in response to those 
empirical observations to God. So the singer refers to a habitual past in which he has considered God's creation and Christ's incarnation and atoning sacrifice. When you say a habitual past, what do you mean? So when I say habitual, I mean it is a uh, it is an implied habit. It is an implied th- it is something that has happened in the past, and it is implied that it has happened multiple times. So when I say uh, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hand hath made. Uh, I'm saying when in this context could easily be replaced by whenever. So it's not just okay. that I uh, consider the worlds thy hands have made one time. It's that uh, whenever I look upon the universe, I am compelled to praise you. Every time he looks at the stars, he thinks about this. Yeah. That's what I mean by habitual past. I guess it's it's certainly conceptually possible that it only happened one time, um, but then we would have the preterite form of the verb and not the the um, present tense of the verb. So um, instead of when I considered all the worlds thy hands have made, that would be one time in the past. This is when I consider. So it's in the present tense implying that this is something that's habitual. Um So God has made worlds, displaying his power throughout the universe, sending his son to die, who gladly bore my burden. Christ will come and take me home. Joy shall fill my heart. I shall bow and proclaim how great thou art, being God. My soul, in response to these things, is uh, praising how great thou, my Savior God, art. So, Colin, that's uh, what it's about. That's what happens. Tell us what— are some of the main points of this hymn. What is the argument that this hymn is trying to get across? Yeah, let me start actually at the very beginning of the song. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. We have the worshiper considering creation and some specific things about creation. It's almost like you can situate yourself with the worshiper looking up into the sky and they see the stars, some of which are suns, some of which are planets. Uh, they, you know, there are the sounds of nature like thunder, and it displays a God who is powerful. And this really lines up with ideas that we see in Scripture. Most famously, Psalm nineteen, verse one, which says, "The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above." proclaims his handiwork, but which is, that part is often quoted. But if you keep going in the psalm, he does the same thing, the psalmist does the same thing that the worshiper does in this song, and he expounds upon some detail. So he, the psalmist then talks about day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And uh, he's not, when he's, when the psalmist is saying speech, I think He's not. He's talking about the sort of sounds of nature. I think that's what he's referring to. He doesn't say thunder here, um, but uh, I think that that's kind of what is meant here. Um, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. So he's talking about the stars, and uh, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. So he's talking about the sun. It's rising from the end of the heavens and the circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So it talks about the warmth that the sun gives. So my point just in bringing up that psalm is just that it is good and right to meditate on God's creation. This is a useful thing to do. It's something we see in Scripture, and it's something that, if we do it, will cause us to praise God. And so it is right as well that the refrain follows, which says, this this causes my soul to sing, looking at these stars. Mm-hmm. In this first verse, we see the creation of worlds. And I don't want any listeners to be worried by this because uh, worlds can mean many things. It can mean the earth. It can mean the age of men. It can mean heavenly bodies and spheres, which is clearly what's meant here. It's meant that uh, other heavenly bodies have been created. It's not implying like Narnia or something. No, 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 no. It's it's not meaning ages of men, which is what the word world originally meant in Old English. It's it's meaning spheres. It's mm-hmm. meaning planets and stars. Um, and we also see some pronouns that we haven't seen before in any of the music we've done on this yes. podcast. Thee, thy, thou, yes. thine. Yes. Um, Tyler, you are an expert <laughs> in this sort of thing. Yes. So these are archaic pronouns. Archaic meaning... Uh, old. <laughs> That's what that <laughs> word means. <laughs> uh, archaic means these were formally used and they formally had a specific purpose. But now if I were to use them, it would clearly be stylistic. Yeah. It would be a decision that I made to add a kind of flavor to it. And actually, that's what's going on in this song. Oh, really? Because this translation is from the mid-20th century. Really? So- yes. How do you know? So you know that because of the the time that the song is written, but they presu- the song presumably uses these pronouns correctly, or not? It does. It does. Yeah. It uses them correctly, but it's uh, an arch. It's an archaism. It's a. It's kind of a forced archaism um, mm-hmm. because the song. The let me look at the. Okay, it it was originally a Swedish song, translated into German translated into Russian, translated into English by a missionary. Wow. So uh, this is a – we could look at every different version of this song and try and make sense of it, but we're not doing that. We're just looking at the one version that everyone has in uh, in the English-speaking world. Um, So these pronouns, thou and thee, were originally meant to communicate – uh, an informality between you and yeah, another person. True. So ironically, whereas these kind of bear these very heavy meanings now, originally it was just a casual way of speaking to a friend, similar to in German how you would say du for a friend right. or a family <clears throat> member, but z if you're talking to a stranger. Yes, you would have been the formal, right? You would have been if you were addressing a uh, plurality of people or – if you were addressing a lord. Yeah. So right. yes, it would have been uh, uh it would have implicated a hierarchy. Yeah. That thee and thou um Yeah, like you'd don't. say thee and thou to your wife, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. And thy and thine, these are simply possessives. Uh in 
in um, early modern English, thine would have appeared before a vowel initial word like thine own and thy would have appeared before consonant initial words like thy hand. So this this song is using them properly, um, but it's important to note that whatever we associate with them now, formality, um, you know, royalty maybe or something like that, they were originally just very casual pronouns. It's funny you mention that because those pronouns only exist in the chorus and the first verse. They do not exist. Now, God is not addressed in the second and third verses. These these verses are merely about the person's thoughts about God or expectations of God. There's no address to God, apart from the very last line, of course, my God, how great thou art. And when I think, come on, that God, his son, I spirit. I scarce can take it. But on that cross. One thing I really like about this song is it's got a very clear exposition of the cross and what Christ does in verse two. So when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And at first I was thinking about something we brought up in the first series for a few songs about the notion of Christ's willingness versus Christ's passivity because we have this line that God didn't spare his son and sent him to die. But of course, this is a quite scriptural idea. We actually read n- numerous places in the Gospels of Christ being sent and God sending his son. The other thing I like about this stanza is we have the second half that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing. Now, burden is a euphemism, and if the song had left it at that, we could reasonably infer that that's talking about sin, but you know you could infer that it's other things too. But then we have a very clear explanation right after that. He bled and died to take away my sin. So we have a clear equivalence or an exposition on the, the burden, and we can see that this is sin. Do you have thoughts on that second stanza, Tyler? No, I think you've covered everything uh, that I would have covered. So my burden that he's bearing is the burden of sin that is duly mine to bear. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Uh, In the refrain, we have the big line, then sings my soul. Yeah. Um, Can souls sing? No, they cannot. They can't. Yeah. (laughs) So obviously, literally, souls cannot sing, but... I think we can be generous here and say it's it's obviously meant to be a metaphor for us pouring f- forth our praise in a joyful song. From our innermost being. Yeah. So like you see David doing this in the yes. psalm, talking to his soul, exhorting his soul. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's, he's having a conversation with his innermost part. Mm-hmm. Psalm 84.2 says, 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So right. my heart is singing in the Psalms. Obviously, you know, hearts, they pump, yeah. but they don't, sing. they don't sing. So it's clearly a metaphor and this is fine, yeah. right? Uh, but it's just for our persnickety listeners, we acknowledge that this is a, a metaphor. In Christ shall We shall evacuation Then lead me home What joy shall fill my heart It captures very well the individual meaning of what it will be be like to be in the presence of God without describing it in ways that we've seen before, which imply a kind of emotional drunkenness or insobriety. So it describes the individual as being filled with joy in their heart, bowing, adoring, but also being coherent enough to proclaim praise with his lips, which is a neat connection to the fact that the song is being sung in the moment. So there's something kind of neat going on there where implicitly what the song is saying is we will be worshiping in heaven in some ways just as we are now. Like what we're doing right now by worshiping with this song is – exactly the same thing that we're going to be doing in heaven. That's very interesting. I had not thought of that. We have reviewed other songs, which imply that, oh no, when we get to heaven, like it's going to be like, we're going to be like knocked unconscious because we're going to be so, heaven is going to be, yeah, heaven is going to be like being high. A trip. Yeah, it's going to be a trip. trip. That's a good way to think of it. Like heaven is going to be some kind of trip. And It's true that I think heaven will be something beyond what we can fully grasp and comprehend now, but we will, in the same way we're sober now in church singing, we will be, or should be, (laughs) the same way we should be sober when we're in church. And I mean, don't mean that in terms of chemicals, I mean that in terms of our emotional state more. But in the same way that we're emotionally sober in church now, we will be emotionally sober in heaven, even though we will be clearly experiencing emotions in heaven. But presumably with our glorified bodies, yes. so we, we will, will have be, greater capacity to... We will experiencing the, be experiencing those emotions without any taint of sin. We will be experiencing emotions in the perfect way that they were, were always intended. It will be beautiful. Reading through this third verse, I noticed uh, an interesting idea, and I wondered what this shout of acclamation is that Christ is coming with. Is is he coming and shouting his approval of us at his second coming? Is this a kind of well done, my good and faithful servant that he's saying to the faithful when he comes back? Um, so the line is, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. The Oxford English Dictionary, the authoritative source on the meanings of words in English, states that acclamation is an expression of approbation or warm approval or praise. So I think we do have to understand this in the sense of the parable of the bags of gold, where the 
the Lord leaves his estate, he leaves one person in charge of five bags of gold, another person in charge of two, another person in charge of one. And when he comes back, the guy who took five and got five more, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we're, we're going to, we are sinners. And so he's not going to come back and be pleased with everything that we've done. But if we are in his fold, as he is our shepherd, uh, we, and we are faithful to him, I think we can reasonably expect him to come back and be pleased with the faithful. So you think acclamation is referring to Christ acclaiming us? Yeah. I wonder if it's us acclaiming Christ. I see. So I'm also conceptually okay with that, but I wonder if he says, if the author says, when he comes with shout of acclamation, does that mean he is coming to our shouts of acclamation? Hmm. Because to me, that implies, if I say, Colin came with shouts of praise, I would say Colin was shouting when he came. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's the way I would read that. It is interesting that Christ would be shouting. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, we have to accept the archaism a little bit here, right? It it doesn't mean, because when we think of shouting, we assume that somebody's angry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you are awesome! (laughs) Dude! (laughs) So, but presumably... Okay. But obviously it's, you know, clearly it's it's legitimate but, for us to say, look, we're going to praise the Lord when he comes back. I'm not saying that that's Yes, yeah, so with can also think be thought of as accompanying. So Christ will come accompanied by shouts of acclamation and take me home. If we had a, a fine distinction between ablative, dative, No, right, and exactly. We would know. We yes, would that's know right. Clearly, we would know. But we don't have that no, we in don't. English. So no. we just have the preposition no. with no cases. Right. We just kind of have mean, to guess. I mean, in Latin, that would normally be we the would ablative. Know immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but okay. So, <laughs> either way, though, however it is, it's reasonable because yeah. we have Christ saying, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Or alternatively, we have the scenes in Revelation where, when John goes to the throne room of God, there are shouts of acclamation being given to Christ as well. So it either way works. It's yes, it's ambiguous, but none of the ambiguities lead us down a path that's unclear. So yeah, okay, if we have some people in the congregation thinking this means that Christ is going to acclaim me by saying, Well done, good and faithful servant, fine. If part of the congregation thinks Christ is going to be accompanied by shouts of acclamation, like we will hear them, you know, there will be heard, their angels or their the church or whatever. Like, that's okay, too. I, I, I don't see a problem. Mm-hmm. No, it's fine. I just was intrigued by the wording. And yeah. It's not something that we typically hear when we think about uh, the second coming of Christ. Wait, does it say shouts or shout? I thought it was shout. I think actually you're right. In which case, it's singular. So... A singular person shouting? Yeah. So in that case, it may be more likely to be... Unless it's a bunch of people shouting the same thing, in which case it's still one shout. Yeah, I guess that one shout, many people. Yeah. Okay. We don't know. We don't know. Um, We see a very beautiful scriptural idea of bowing in humble adoration. Mm. So Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that's Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right, so this is a lovely scriptural idea for this song to incorporate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Colin, do you have any remarks to conclude this uh, this song's review? So yeah, let me say something about clarity yeah. uh, and coherence since we're moving towards wrapping up. This is, in my view, a very clear song, a very coherent song. And uh, I'll say a little bit about the adaptation. The version that I saw, which was... The one with millions of views on YouTube, Featured right? a woman named Lauren De- Deagle. Deagle? Deagle? Uh, featured a woman named... Is that the one that you saw, too? I was appreciative of the fact that it seemed pretty laid back. There, w- It was just a, a few instruments, a few singers. She was way better than the guy, wasn't she? She was the amazing. Guy was, the guy was like, come on, everybody! Yeah, you, he, he kept, get over here and yes, sing! <laughs> he kept wanting everybody to sing. That on that cross, would you lift your voice? Come on. Why, it didn't make sense to me because the, the whole mood of the thing was subdued like mm-hmm. what did he want people to do he clearly wanted them to do i don't know if he wanted them to like lift their lighters up or whatever now they do cell phones they don't do lighters but um and i guess what would it say if a whole bunch of christians had lighters it would either say that they're smokers or grave sinners depending on mm-hmm. your presuppositions about smoking yeah so yeah I, I i would just say the setting you liked yeah the setting i liked and they didn't change anything about the song lyrically as far as i could tell it was the same lyrics that existed at when, you know, in the traditional versions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was very, I was pretty bowled over by the fact that this song, did you, you just, you just wouldn't, there would be no mystery about what you were singing when you sung this song. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah, I found the song to be quite clear. I knew what was happening. I knew why we were praising. Explicit reasons were given. I knew who I was praising, or whom, excuse me, I was praising. Uh, And on a little bit of a picky note, the pronouns, if you're going to use the archaic pronouns, you use them properly, and this song does do that, right? So my Savior God to thee, right? Because it's the object of a preposition Mm -hmm. there, so it's no longer thou. Um, It was clear. It was coherent. It was scriptural. I have high praise for the song. And uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the big stadium worship sure. setting, but yeah. I agree with you. It was quite subdued. There was a lot of acapella singing in this uh, version that I saw, which yeah. it sounds like was the same one that you saw. So I've got nothing but good things to say about this song. Uh, Tyler, do you think this song is appropriate for use in a church worship service? I do think this song is appropriate for use in a church worship service. It's clear, it's scriptural, it's uh, elegant, poetically, and uh, it glorifies God from very good, explicit motives. What would, what about you, Colin? Would you say that this song is appropriate for use in a church worship service? I would. You could listen to this song in the car. You could sing it in a church worship service. I think it's fantastic. Very good. You what? could almost do it the way that they did it, too. I mean, apart from the lights and the the silent platform and everything else, it was it was good. Did you notice the people kind of huddled around on the platform? I didn't. They were kind of kneeling or sitting and hugging their knees next to her. 
Oh, yeah. There were about eight people. Yeah, the, yeah I saw a guy, at least one guy, that was just sitting down. I wondered if those were other musicians yeah, that were just a, taking a seat. A little breather song. Like everyone yeah. takes a breather except for Lauren Daigle and... Uh, the guy and the piano player. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So, Colin, what would be your rating? I I will give this song five out of five pieces of jewelry I bought on Etsy. Yes. I When I first saw her, I thought... I mean, it's almost Cleopatra-esque because her T-shirt... <laughs> I thought of that exactly, Her T-shirt yes. was also had this yes. arc to it as That's well. Right. It almost looked like a suit of armor. Race. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminded me a little bit of Cleopatra and a little bit of those um, um, Catholic depictions of Mary where her heart has these like beams ah, pouring yeah. out of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I almost did the jewelry. So um, very nice. Five <laughs> out of five. High praise, Colin. Yep. High praise. What about you, Tyler? I give this song five out of five red rooms. There's a scene about three quarters of the way through this uh, music video, the biggest one on YouTube, where the room is red and the platform they're on is black and white stripes. And then behind them are black and white stripes. And the guy playing the synthesizer, the keyboard, has the same synth pads that Angelo Badalamenti, sounds like the same ones that Angelo Badalamenti used for Twin Peaks. Mm. And there's a scene in the last part of the first season. uh, No, there's a scene in the last part of the second season of Twin Peaks where they go into the red room and it looks a lot like this. So there's a floor in the red room that's white and black stripes. Mm -hmm. There's a red aura. There's a red curtain behind them. And those synth pads are playing really creepy tunes. Nice. (laughs) So if you don't know Twin Peaks, that was just nonsense. But it's all right. It just brought me to a scene from a television show. All three of our listeners, I'm sure, watch (laughs) Twin Peaks. Yes. Yeah. If they're listening to this, they probably like awkward. uh, You have to like awkwardness if you listen to this show. That pretty much is what we bring each and every week, as we will also bring it next week. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you listening. Yep. (laughs) That was awkward. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) We appreciate you listening. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.